Thank you all for coming. I'm so pleased to welcome you to this chair lecture to mark the occasion of Rich Hines becoming the John Allen Love Professor of Law. And we're delighted to have his wife, Laura, here too. Uh, and if he is on time with his remarks, it will be because she helped him with the timing. So she gets the credit. Uh, as I've said before, chair lectures are an important event, not just for the faculty member being celebrated, but for all of us as well who get to commemorate this day, celebrate our colleague and his accomplishments, uh, and also celebrate our own vibrant intellectual community. Uh, you have either received or are about to receive the most recent issue of the UVA Lawyer magazine, which highlights uh, a cover story about our unique intellectual culture that people often refer to as the Virginia model, our collegial, diverse uh, intellectual community here, and how it has proliferated across higher education. There are 11 law school deans who are faculty, seven university presidents, more than 550 of our alumni working in higher education in some capacity, more than 250 as law professors or adjuncts, and in, um, 15 alumni who teach at this law school. This dissemination of the Virginia model across higher education is a testament of, uh, to what we do so well, and it is what we are uh, on display today, and in part what we are celebrating. We value both our scholarly excellence and our intellectual community. Uh, and the chair lecture is an event that melds both and allows us to celebrate the successes of our own Rich Hines today. Rich earned a Bachelor of Science from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University in 1990, where he was elected to Phi Beta Kappa, and a PhD in economics from the University of Pennsylvania, as well as a law degree from the University of Chicago, where he was Order of the Coif. After graduating from law school in 1997, Rich practiced law with Skadden, Arps, Slate, Meager, and Flum in Los Angeles. And in 2000, he entered the academy, joining the faculty at William and Mary Law School just down the road. After visiting here for a year, he joined our faculty in 2007. That means, and this is math I can handle, this is his 10th anniversary uh, at the law school, and I'm delighted to celebrate that anniversary with the chair uh, and this lecture. Rich is an expert in consumer finance and law and economics, and he teaches in bankruptcy, contracts, corporate finance, and secured transactions. Across those fields, Rich brings uh, his economic and empirical training to bear on important and relevant issues, not only to lawyers, but to real people in the world. In two critical ways, Rich's scholarship has differed from that of many of his bankruptcy colleagues. First, where many bankruptcy scholars focus on corporate insolvencies, Rich explores consumer insolvency. And second, where many scholars limit themselves in scope to the bankruptcy system itself, Rich has called attention to and analyzed both bankruptcy and the parallel legal system that handles debtor-creditor relations outside of bankruptcy. This includes things like state garnishments, uh, state court garnishments, which uh, Rich wrote about in a 2006 Cornell Law Review article, Bankruptcy and State Collections Proceedings, the case of the missing garnishments. And what he found was that in one year in Virginia, the number of uh, garnishments issued dwarfed the number of non-business bankruptcies, 188,000 plus as compared to just 39,000. So once he's established that not only uh, do parallel processes exist, but that people really avail themselves of these uh, other processes, Rich has gone on to explore why creditors choose the, the paths they do, including how those various options are um, influenced by the ability of creditors and uh, to harass editors, to 
uh, uh, to get their debts paid. And in particular, he's looked at uh, what states uh, that provide debtors, uh, sorry, that provide debtors with a, a private right of action against abusive creditors, what that existence of those statutes do. Uh, and he's find that, found that in those states, debtors are more likely simply to refuse to pay their debts than to go to bankruptcy, in part because bankruptcy provides them protections from abusive creditors, and they don't need those protections when they are statutorily protected. That's what he explored in non-judicial debt collection and the consumer's choice among repayment, bankruptcy, and informal bankruptcy in the American Bankruptcy Law Journal. The broad canvas that Rich has found in consumer finance has included not only the different paths debtors can take and the different legal regimes available to them, but also the varied experiences that differently situated debtors have with the bankruptcy system, as well as their different experiences of different state law regimes, including property exemptions, and how that affects the availability of credit. He, in other words, offers a comprehensive picture of the interrelated legal regimes by which debtors can discharge their debts. Now, across both his uh, consumer insolvency work and his other scholarship, Rich connects the real world to important theoretical issues in the law. So to move away from bankruptcy for a moment, we'll come back to it with Rich's talk, take the article posted, colon, Notice uh, and the Right to Exclude, that Rich published in the Arizona State Law Journal in 2013. We've all seen signs saying no trespassing or posted no trespassing. Why do we see those signs when the Supreme Court and we all know that the hallmark of a protected property interest is the right to exclude others, right? Why then would there be so many signs reminding passersby that they aren't supposed to trespass on property that surely they must know they do not own? So Rich has shown in this article that the actual right to exclude is actually far more contingent and porous than any simplistic theory might posit. The signs help, but there are still many exceptions to the right to exclude. In Virginia, for example, this is one of his most colorful examples, I think, uh, he talks about how landowners can post their land with signs, as many as they want, and yet strangers will still have the statutory right to invade the property at night, accompanied by howling dogs and armed to the teeth with guns, as long as the intruders are, quote, coon hunters, that's an actual quote from the Virginia statute, uh, who began chasing their prey on other lands. He has other examples as well, kindred limits on exclusive rights ranging from the controversial right to roam in many European countries, rights to fish in many United States, and beach access rights in sunny California. And that is all only the beginning, because Rich proceeds to show how such exceptions to exclusive rights are theoretically related to and affected by the intricacies in the rules for posting land, the notice systems for security interests under the Uniform Commercial Code, and even possible new notice systems using modern GPS technology. Finally, because Rich has an economics PhD, he of course relates this all back to the Coase theorem. If you read this piece, you will never look at a no trespassing sign the same way again. I know I won't. Before I turn it over to Rich, uh, I want to say uh, what a pleasure it is to celebrate not only such an accomplished scholar, but a great colleague. You are dedicated, diligent, generous with your time, and deeply engaged. And every time I work with you, I am so gratified, which is not really what you want to hear the dean say, because it means more assignments will be forthcoming. Uh, but re it really is a pleasure always uh, to work with you and to know you. 
Now, I am eager to hear Rich's thoughts on Chapter 11, bankruptcy, and before you laugh and call that insincere, you should know that when I was clerking, I worked on several bankruptcy cases and enjoyed them immensely, so much so that my co-clerks called me the bankruptcy queen. So I have a secret interest in bankruptcy law going way back, and I really am excited to hear what Rich has learned about why people file for Chapter 11, what differentiates them from those filing for Chapter 13, and how they fare once they do file. As Dan Ortiz said, when I became the John Allen Love Professor of Law after him, I am happy now to say to you, welcome to the Love Professor. Thank you. Thank you very much. So much of what I'm, this is on, sorry. Much of what I'm gonna talk about today is drawn from a study I recently finished that was funded by the American Bakery Institute and co-authored with Ann Lawton and Margaret Howard. But first, a little bit of background. I'm told by my more senior colleagues that when it used to be that when you were awarded a chair, you actually got a wooden chair. But that practice stopped somewhere along the way, so I decided to get my own. <laughs> Which is appropriate because this isn't so much of a chair as it is a bench. And the word bankruptcy comes from the Italian phrase that actually means broken bench. Well, at the time, the, the traders, the money traders, would trade on a bank, uh, on, a, on a, uh, a bench or a table. And when they became insolvent, their creditors would take the bench and they'd break it. They'd smash it, putting them out of business. Now, this is actually a fairly tame remedy by historical standards. I, 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 noted I did not damage the floor here. That was the cardboard. <laughs> Uh, in ancient Greece, insolvency was a capital offense. And in ancient Rome, the creditors had the right to either enslave the debtor or divide the body pro rata, effectively another capital offense. Right? My, American bankruptcy law is not so harsh, offering uh, insolvent individuals, anyway, a fresh start, allowing them to keep their income and shielding most of their assets from their creditors. Uh, over time, the lenders objected arguing that, there were, that American bankruptcy law was too generous to consumers and that too many consumers were filing when they were able to repay their debts. And they were pointing to rising bankruptcy filings. The president of our university, Terry Sullivan, made important contributions to this, to this debate by looking into the files of people who filed for bankruptcy and interviewing these individuals. To try to, to try to figure out who they were, what, they, what did they owe, and could they repay their debts. Indeed, she sparked a cottage industry by helping to train scholars that did, that did just this. As Risa uh, uh, explained in her introduction, my early scholarship tried to take a different path. That was fairly covered. So what I, was, what I chose to do is look at the people who were not filing for bankruptcy, arguing that bankruptcy was the, the bankrupt consumers were just a subset of the insolvent consumers. Indeed, a small subset. Most individuals who don't pay their debts don't file for bankruptcy, instead choosing what I, what I like to call informal bankruptcy, simply not paying their debts and letting their creditors come after them. Now, uh, at one point in time in the 19th century, informal bankruptcy was the only game in town. The first three bankruptcy acts lasted collectively a total of 20 years. It wasn't until 1898 that we actually had a lasting bankruptcy act in this country. And it wasn't until the late 20th century that we had a really a significant number of bankruptcies. 
Now, there are, there, now, granted, some of the rise in bankruptcy filings in the late 20th century reflects the growth in the consumer credit industry and the, and the increasing debt loads of consumers. But, though, but here at the University of Virginia, Mr. Jefferson's university, I think we should at least remember that we've always been a nation of debtors. Okay. Um, so, uh, so if we widen our lens and look at, and look at informal bankruptcy, it changes the picture somewhat. Uh, Terry Sullivan, her second major book in this bankruptcy series was called The Fragile Middle Class. And the primary argument was that the, the ranks of bankrupt debtors are drawn from the middle class. As they, as, uh, as they opened their book, you know, stalled middle class individuals just like ourselves. You know, they're, they're just like you and me. That's their argument, right? Um, my work, I, I, one of the lessons of my work is if you widen the lens, you tend to see that the people who are choosing informal bankruptcy have much lower levels of income and much lower assets. And this makes sense. Why is bankruptcy expensive? It costs thousands of dollars to file for bankruptcy, and many people simply don't have the funds to be able to file for bankruptcy. And you might think that the, the solution to that then is to make bankruptcy cheaper. Right? Simplify bankruptcy and make it cheaper. There's a risk, though, in the sense that you might, if you, if you simplify the procedures, you might be trying to thrust everybody into the same crusty in bed. And for some individuals, a more complex procedure makes sense because we actually want to spend money to verify their income and assets and see if there's anything to distribute. Now, you might, you, that, that it, okay, well, one other solution would be to then tailor bankruptcy law so that different procedures apply to different individuals, which now brings me to today's topic, because that's exactly what today is about. So, um, uh, a few years ago, I received a call uh, it seemed that the American Bankruptcy Institute had started a project studying individuals who filed under Chapter 11. Shortly after the project, just, they, I think they just had some organizational meetings, the principal investigator passed away. It was Ted, Ted Eisenberg, sadly passed away. And they asked me if I'd be willing to step in, 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 in his stead. At first, I was reluctant, because although they had found a, a gap in the literature, Terry Sullivan's work and other people's work focused on people who filed for bank, individuals filing for bankruptcy, but not individuals in Chapter 11. So there really wasn't anything significant in that area. But I wasn't sure how important of a gap that it, that it was. Because, I, because bankruptcy is divided into chapters. The first three, uh, and all but, all but uh, one of them are odd numbered. So when I say the first three, I mean one, three, and five. Those are just nuts and bolts chapters that apply to every bankruptcy. Those sections in those chapters. Uh, but the, by far the most common, well, the other chapters, you select among them. You file under chapter seven, you file under chapter nine, and you have to choose. By far the most common chapter, uh, chapter seven, accounting for about 62% of all bankruptcies, is liquidation. For corporations, that's the end of the line. We take their assets, we sell it, and we just distribute it according to the priority rules. This is in ancient Greece or Rome. We don't liquidate individuals. We allow them to keep their future income. We take only their non-exempt assets, sell their non-exempt assets, and distribute them. Oh, and by the way, uh, nobody in Chapter 7 has non-exempt assets. That's, that's, uh, that's uh, sorry, yeah, no, right. Uh, every, uh, debtors in, I said that correctly. Debtors in Chapter 7, nothing, individuals, nothing gets distributed to their unsecured creditors. They don't have any non-exempt assets. 
The rest of the chapters here are various forms of reorganizations. In other words, what we do is we take the debts of the debtor and we adjust them to a more manageable level. The most common form of reorganization is chapter 13, adjustment of debts for individuals with regular income. This roughly stated individuals must use their income over the next three to five years to repay their creditors. In exchange, they get a little bit more control over the secured creditors, and if they have any non-exempt assets, they can keep them in chapter 13. This is about another 37% of bankruptcy filings, so we're together with chapter, with chapter seven, we're at 99%. I'm not gonna even bother talking about nine 12 and 15, because together they account for 650 bankruptcies, actually not quite 650, out of 800,000. That's just not worth worrying about. Today's topic is chapter 11, which again, admittedly, is also small. It's about 1% of bankruptcies. When we think of chapter 11, we think of large public companies like General Motors and Chrysler. And there are a lot of studies focusing on these large public company bankruptcies. But these are even more rare than the, than the family farmer uh, bankruptcies, at least by number. Uh, since 2010, the, they've averaged about 26 large public company filings a year. Right? So a, a very tiny number. It, uh, small and medium enterprises dominate Chapter 11, at least if you count by the number of filings, not by, obviously by, by assets. Uh, but our study figured out that, well, actually, Individuals account for about 30% of individuals in Chapter 11. Sorry, I messed with that. It's account for 30% of Chapter 11 filings. Individuals obviously account for 100% of individuals in Chapter 11. Now, 30% of a small number is a small number. So why is it that I decided that it was worth looking into this? Well, three reasons. One, Ten Eisenberg was a very smart man. And so I thought he must have seen something interesting here. And so I thought it was worth, worth looking into it. Two, we're still talking about thousands of individuals a year who are going through this process, and this is a significant life event for them. And three, I realized this was a nice analog to my discussion of informal bankruptcy and, and, and bankruptcy. Right? Why is it that some consumers choose informal bankruptcy, that process, versus going into, say, chapter, 11 or, sorry, chapter 7 or 13? Well, this is the other end of the spectrum. Right, why is it that some people are going into chapter 11 instead of chapter 13? And does it actually make sense to have two separate reorganization procedures? And, and, uh, and so that's one of the major questions I'm going to focus on. Today I'm going to focus on three questions. The actual study uh, is obscenely long. I, it's, I, the, the, it, it, it just came out, and so I have the reprints. I've been reluctant to send it to you yet because I thought you might feel pressure to read it at this time of the year because after all, this is on a Friday afternoon like a workshop, and you have other things. You have to write your exams. I want to make sure that the dean stays happy that you get those things done in time. So I'll distribute it shortly. Uh, but, I would, but today I'm going to focus on three main questions. First, do involuntary filings force debtors into involuntary servitude? Let me say a little bit more about that. You, mo almost all debtors voluntarily file for bankruptcy, but it's possible to involuntarily push somebody into bankruptcy. The creditors can get together and file an involuntary petition. You may not file an involuntary petition and push somebody into Chapter 13. Why? Because of concerns of involuntary servitude. Because, the, the, because there could be a plan 
that forces you to work and repay out of your future income. For whatever reason, Congress did not, uh, did not restrict involuntary filings for individuals into Chapter 11, and prior scholars worried that this creates a, a significant risk of involuntary servitude. And so what we're going to do is look at the actual Chapter 11 filings and see if we can find cases that are like this. Second, we're going, to, uh, we're going to look to see, does it make sense to have two very different procedures? I'm not going to try to define the optimal bankruptcy procedure today. We, reasonable minds can disagree. There's lots of different ways to structure it. But to the extent that the Chapter 11 debtors look like the Chapter 13 debtors, but just maybe with a little bit too much debt, it probably doesn't make sense to have two very different procedures that apply to them. Right? So it's gonna, we're going to focus a lot on who, what, do the, what do the Chapter 11 debtors look like, and do they look like the results that people like, uh, like President Sullivan found when they looked at the Chapter 13. And finally, I'm going to try to say a little bit about how successfully Chapter 11 is serving the interest of debtors and creditors. I say try because it's very difficult to define success in this area. Different, debtors have different goals, and, then the, and, and those are just the debtors' goals. We have to think about more, more larger system goals. So we'll just, I'm just going to provide some data that might inform the debate about how well it's working. So the, uh, first, let me say a little bit about our data. So we were able to get uh, PACER waivers from uh, the districts that account for about 90% of all Chapter 11 filings. So there's some omitted, uh, omitted uh, data that we don't have, but it's very small. So I think I have pretty close to the universe of, chap of Chapter 11 filings. We decided to look uh, initially at cases filed in 2010. Why? We wanted, to get, uh, we wanted to look at cases that were filed long enough ago that they had a chance to develop. They had a chance to see if they would actually fail or not. On the other hand, we didn't want to look too far back, because if you go too far back, you really get into the teeth of the recession, or even further back, you get into uh, the effects of the Bankruptcy Reform Act of 2005. So 2010 was a nice compromise. But then we also worried that, well, 2010 was, that was still the tail end of the, of the, of the severe recession, so we drew some additional data from 2013 to try to compensate, although there isn't, enough, there isn't as much time for those cases to really de develop. To, to find our cases, uh, I, Ed Morrison gave me this tip that you could go onto PACER and get these case reports, which are big spreadsheets of every single bankruptcy case filed in that district in that year. And it actually gives you some information about the cases. So some of the, some of the analysis that I will show you is what I call big data, as big as it can be when you're looking at individual Chapter 11s, in the, in the sense that it's every single individual Chapter 11, in some cases, every single individual Chapter 13 filed in these districts. I have limited information about that. Then using a random number generator, we tried to select about a, 100 cases per year for, for hand coding. Why, it's not exactly 100. Why? Because my PACER waivers kept coming in over time. And so I would add new jurisdictions, and so we got a little bit more than 100. Right? Okay. So uh, first question. This I can uh, dispose of fairly, fairly quickly. Do, do we have a significant involuntary servitude problem? The answer is no. You know, remember the story is that people are going to be forced into a plan that requires them to work to repay their creditors. There's two ways you can end up in Chapter 11 against your will. One, your creditors can file an involuntary petition. 
You weren't in bankruptcy at all, and you're pushed into bankruptcy. But a petition, an involuntary petition, doesn't even actually start a bankruptcy case. Why? Because we allow the debtor to object. Hey, I'm. What do you mean? I'm paying my debts as they come due, right? So it's only if the if the court enters an order for relief after there's an involuntary petition, you actually get a beginning of the case. And there we had two out of our. Uh, uh, roughly 6,700 individual Chapter 11s, we had two involuntary petitions to begin a case. They both get dismissed. The other way you can end up against your will is you could file, say, in Chapter 7, which doesn't require you to pay out of your future income, and your creditors can file a motion to convert your case into Chapter 11. We looked for those two, and we found, again, two, one in each year. One of those cases gets dismissed, the other one is still outstanding. There's not even a plan approved yet. The debtor has recently proposed a plan, I guess I should say, still, as of the beginning of this year. I haven't checked between publication and, and today's date. Uh, the debtor proposed a plan, but there had yet to be a hearing. So there might be one case where there was a debtor voluntary proposed the plan, but they were pushed in. So that we, you can debate about whether that's involuntary or not. But this does not seem to be a significant practical problem is the main lesson. I'll spend more time talking about the two different procedures, chapters 11 and 13. And I want to try to first start from convincing you that they're very different. Well, I want to first start from the fact that chapter 13 has debt limits. So one of the concerns that, that, that led to this study was that are there lots of people who are just regular consumers who are ending up in chapter 11 just because they have a little too much debt? If you, and these debt limits change over time, but today it's about, if you have more than about $395,000 of unsecured debt, or if you have more than about $1.2 million of secured debt. So there was a concern there'd be people, say, in Los Angeles who had, who had big mortgages who should be in Chapter 13 but aren't because of the, of the debt limits. And so that, we'll, we'll come back to that. A major difference between Chapter 11 and Chapter 13 is control and plan approval. In chapter 11, it's the debtor in possession. The debtor retains control of, the, of his or her finances, revenue, et cetera, if they're operating a business. And the debtor proposes a plan, and the creditors have to participate and actually vote on the plan. So it rely, it's more traditional adversarial style conduct. People represent themselves. Chapter 13 is different in the sense that there's a trustee appointed to act on behalf of the creditors. The creditors don't vote. The trustee has to approve the plan. But the trustee also divests the debtor of some control over the debtor's life. The trustee controls the revenue, the income of the debtor. So there's a loss of control for debtors who choose Chapter 13. Chapter 13 also is a lot less flexible than Chapter 11. If you file under Chapter 13, you have to propose your plan within two weeks, 14 days. You have to begin your payment within 30 days. And you have to complete your plan within five years or three years if you're below median income. Chapter 11 doesn't have those restrictions. And in fact, the study is going to show that the first plan that gets proposed isn't within 14 days. That never happens. The median time is six months later for the first plan. And most plans are not five years. Most plans are 30 years long because they're restructuring mortgages. 
cost is different. Chapter 13 is expensive. Different studies, for, I mean, it varies a lot from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but a typical number thrown out is that the median fees are about $25,000. Chapter 11, we'd have to wait until the end of the 30 years to find the total amount, but the, total, but the amount that the debtor pays at the outset you know, the, the down payment on, on the fees is about three times that, at least 7,500. Absolute priority doesn't exist in Chapter uh, 13, does exist in might exist in Chapter 11. There's a circuit split. We'll say a little bit more about that. Uh, well, actually, there's a jurisdiction split. I think no circuit is actually at this point uh, found that, that, uh, that, it, that, it, uh, that it doesn't exist. So... Uh, what is absolute priority? That's just simply the idea that you've got that the senior creditors have to be repaid in full before the, the, the juniors, the equity holder, gets anything. This gets a little bit more problematic for an individual, right? Because because your, your your income becomes part of the estate, and so the question is, should you be allowed to have uh, any of your income uh, retained without paying, repaying your creditors? Chapter 11 clearly exempts the income from the absolute priority rule. Right, so that you can pay your living expenses. The question is, what about your other assets? Suppose you have other non-exempt assets. Can you retain any of these assets without repaying your creditors in full? Some, most courts have said no. The, the, the exception to the absolute priority rule only applies to income. A few courts have said, yes, you can. There's a broad exception. Um, and then lastly, one thing that's similar about both chapters uh, that, that's important for understanding why we measure some things the way we do. You don't get your bankruptcy discharge, the cancellation of your debts, until you complete your plan of reorganization. Uh, Risa made a, a reference to my timing. I forgot to start my stopwatch, so uh, I'll start it now. Um, all right. So you're in for a long talk. All right. Uh, okay. So uh, do the debtors in Chapter 11 look like the debtors in Chapter 13? And the answer we find is, well, not really. Chapter 11 debtors have much higher income, expenses, and assets, and debts. On the other hand, we're going to show that many of them were, in fact, eligible for Chapter 13, but they chose not to file for Chapter 13. Why? Well, because it, seemingly because they uh, want to operate a business, and they don't want to lose control. And maybe because they're operating a business, they don't really know their circumstances well enough and they can't comply with the strict deadlines. And they have lots of real estate. And the, trying to restrict themselves to the five years doesn't really work. Okay. So a few just sort of introductory background statistics. Uh, one of the first things I noticed that I did was just, was just uh, had, I had fun looking at, well, not fun, but had, uh, I used a, a, a web page, genderchecker.com and inserted the names of the individuals to try to categorize uh, who was filing. There's a lot, there were, there were a number of papers that looked at Chapter 13 and found about a third of the filings or more, third or more of the filings were women filing alone and wanted to see if we saw a similar pattern. We don't. We see much more men or joint filings. But then when we dug into the records, it was uh, something else that was curious. We see a lot of, of married individuals, the rate of married individuals is much higher than the rate of joint filings. Joint meaning husband and wife are filing together. So there's a lot of cases here where we have uh, usually the husband filing without, without the wife. Right? And, and so that's telling you something about, about the scope of the discharge. They must not be jointly liable on their debts, which is going to make sense because a lot of these are business debts. Uh, what do they do? Well, uh, 
we just, this is a little bit crude because we just had to look at how they describe themselves on their form of their occupation. And we see an awful lot of individuals that suggest that they're owning or operating a business or that they're self-employed. Right? These are not wage earners for the most part. I mean, there are, there are a significant number of them, but we see a lot of people that say that, that they're operating a business. And we find that they, that, they, that they declare that they've been employed in their current occupation for very long periods of time. So, Professor, uh, so President Sullivan's work suggests that the median employment duration for people in her studies was about 18 months. We're finding a median distribution with this is in years, seven and a half years, nine years. Often, it may, I suspect that they're not operating the same business, but they just said, oh, I've been in the real estate business or whatever it is for a long period of time. Their in, what's their income look like? Well, these are the median incomes, anyway, are about you know, roughly $100,000 a year. You know, yes, there's, you, know, you will get some people like 50 cent filing for bankruptcy, some celebrities with extremely high incomes, but, the, but they do not dominate the files. It's mostly uh, individuals who, I, I, actually, I'm not sure what middle class means, but I think many people would refer to, the, would refer to this as upper middle class. And this is going to be a consistent theme with the other data. Uh, this is just breaking it down a little bit more in more fine-grained. Uh, 30, about 36, 37 percent have incomes that would place them in the top 20 percent of households. About 14 percent would place them in the top 5 percent of households. Right? Um, you would, might think, well, gee, of such high incomes, how could you be in bankruptcy? Well, they have very high expenses as well. These are monthly expenses. So expenses of, uh, of 10,000 to 25,000 per month are common. Part of this is these, yes, they are enjoying lifestyles beyond the reach of the ordinary American, but also a lot of these are business expenses. They're operating businesses and that's getting swept up in here. They have a lot of debt. I guess this is kind of small type. So I'll just focus down here on the median. Well, actually, I'll start with you in the maximum. Some of, the, some of these are pretty big cases. You probably can't read this, but the largest case we had was $161 million worth of debt. That's a lot of debt for an individual, I think, uh, right? But the median value of the total, uh, total debt for in 2010 was $1.8 million. In 2013, it dropped to $1.5. In fact, if you look at these figures, so this is the secured debt of 1.25 in 2010, 900,000 in 2013. Here we have 229, 2010, 208 in 2013. Those are, should sound familiar. They're similar anyway to the debt limits, the Chapter 13 debt limits. So, and in fact, if you look at the number of individuals who would have been eligible to file under Chapter 13, it was, I was shocked at how high it was, at least in 2000. So there's, a, there's two colors here. Blue is under the existing debt limits. So in 2010, it was about 27%. In 2013, about 47% of our, of our debtors in Chapter 11, at least by their debt limit, would have been eligible under Chapter 13, but they chose 11 instead for some other reason. Now remember, part of the concern was, are there these people that just have mortgages that are a little bit too big for the bankruptcy? So, what I, so I, as a thought experiment, I went ahead and I said, well, let's see who would have been eligible if we raised the debt limits by 50%. And at least in 2013, 
you're picking up some more individuals, but not a huge amount. Right? Obviously, if you raise the debt limits to infinite, everybody would be picked in, would be in. But it's not like there's a lot of people who are just past the debt limit is the point of that slot. Okay. Now, they have a lot of debt. They have a, a, uh, they have a, a, a lot of, a significant number of amount of assets as well. Um, although obviously lower, they're in bankruptcy. Uh, and I guess one thing I should note about these slides, you see this NA here, uh, that, and that appears on a lot of slides, not available. A lot of the debtors aren't completing their schedules or aren't completing them in usable ways, and so we have to put not applicable. Another, another note is when you're interpreting things like these, do these dollar values of assets and liabilities, you have to take them sometimes with a grain of salt, because some of it's their own estimation, and sometimes it's simply put unknown. I don't know how much it's worth. And you have to code that as zero, and you know that, so this is perhaps understating the value of the debts and the assets. Uh, uh, but so median value of total assets of 1.1 million in 2010, 820,000 in 2013. So that's a lot of assets, but not 50 cent assets. Maybe? Actually, I don't know how much 50 cents had. Maybe I should have looked that up. Uh, what, uh, so another way to sort of get a sense of, of, of the individual's well-being is look at home ownership. And we see that nearly everybody has a home. Only about 6 or 7% of the individuals don't have, clearly don't own a home. The median value of their homes, 450000 320000 dropping a lot between 2010 and 2013. Again, those are nice homes, substantially above those of the value of the, the average home in this country, but not necessarily a, a mansion. Um, let's see, other real property. The main point here, there's a lot of it, right? Even in the dollar values, we see individuals having somewhere, uh, other real property meaning other than their home, having uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of of real property, uh, and although not necessarily home equity, they have lots of mortgages, that, so that many of these individuals are underwater. Uh, the median home equity was zero in 2010, minus 7,000, so most of these individuals are underwater, and even more underwater when we're looking at other real property. I, I'm a little bit dubious of some of these estimations of the value of, the, of, of homes uh, at, in, in real estate at this time. And so I want to get a sense of how important real estate was. And so I just asked my RAs as they were digging through the files, just count the number of parcels that are involved, right? And, 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 uh, and include, including those, if, so some of the reason that the real estate numbers can be a little bit misleading is that some individuals own, uh, own LLCs, and the LLC's only asset is real estate. And so their interest in the LLCs is technically personal property, so it can get coded that way and not as real property. So that can be misleading. I just want to know how many parcels of real estate do they add. And I said, well, you know, some of these are going to be mega cases, and I don't want you to spend all day to, on the one or two mega cases counting, you know, to 100 or something like that. So just stop. if they get to 10, if you ever get to 10, it's never going to happen. Just write 10 plus. But I was shocked in that at least in 2010, the number of individuals who had 10 or more parcels of property was about the same. It was actually greater than the number of people who said they had no property. This is, this is joining both 
those with no property with those who didn't complete their schedules. So, there's, so real estate is playing a massive role here. These are individuals with lots of parcels of property. And that makes sense. In, the, in that cha they, chapter 13 isn't as attractive an, of an option for them because one, it's limited to just five years. So they, if you want to actually restructure your mortgage, if you can't get your mortgage, your mortgage creditor to allow you to pay outside of bankruptcy, it's, that's not going to work. And two, if you've got a lot of mortgages, you're going to be beyond the, uh, the debt limits. So I also mentioned that they were likely to be operating a business. One way to, 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 to see this is to, to, to look to see whether they checked a box in their petition that said their debts were primarily business debts. In Chapter 13, fewer than 1% of the debtors check that their debts are primarily business debts. In Chapter 11, it's more about 45%. Right? But that's just whether they check a box, we then, uh, and that may uh, underestimate the role of business. So we then looked at different measures. Uh, the prior slide was for our large uh, data, because that's, that's one of the things that recorded. For the smaller data, for the, what we had, what we hand-coded, we looked first, did they check the primarily business debts? But then we also said, well, your business, if you disclose that you've got inventory, equipment, accounts, intellectual property, or if you disclose an operating business of some sort, or you have more than $1,000 a month of business income. We call that business. I was even more aggressive, so I pushed for another uh, approach and said, well, if you have more than $1,000 of real estate income a month, real estate's still business, so that should be business. Once you do that, substantially everybody's business. right? And this is those that, who are affirmatively business, so the remainder are either not business or they didn't complete their schedules. Right? So there's a lot of business being operated in Chapter 11. Again, maybe that shouldn't surprise us. These are people who either want the are choosing Chapter 11 because they want the control that Chapter 11 provides them, or they need the time that Chapter 11 gives them to figure out their financial affairs. All right. So now this, this comes, brings to the brings me to the last question, uh, which is success. Is, this, is, is Chapter 11 successfully serving the interest of debtors and creditors? And success is, is hard to define here. So in most bankruptcy studies, when they're looking at individuals, ask whether, well, especially those who look at Chapter 13, ask whether the debtors are actually completing their plans and getting their discharge. And that makes sense because we can measure that, but if you ask consumers why they're filing for bankruptcy, getting the discharge is fairly low on the list. All right? they're usually it's save my home or something else. Now, we, can't even, we cannot reasonably use the discharge as a measure for success in Chapter 11. Why? Because you're not supposed to get your discharge until you complete your plan, or unless you can show some sort of special hardship. And the debtors are proposing plans that last 30 years. If I had to wait that long, I might as well be writing a history paper. So instead, with our large data, where we have limited information, I don't know if they have a plan, I simply ask, are they able to avoid dismissal or conversion? Because if, if, if your case is getting dismissed or converted into Chapter 7, you didn't complete a successful reorganization. So you're going to be able to at least avoid that for some period of time. We'll call that a success. And then with the individual, with the smaller data set, we can add to that, did you actually confirm a plan of reorganization? And then if I have time, I'm going to take a little bit, 
uh, look more at the systematic perspective of how long is it taking bankruptcy to sort between cases that there's likely to be a successful reorganization and those that there's not, and then kick them out. You might think that, uh, that it would be, we want a system that, that, that spots the failed cases sooner and kicks them out quickly. On the other hand, we don't want them to do it too quickly because we want, it, we want there to be at least some chance for the information to evolve, right? So again, I'm not sure we want, want speed, but at least I can prevent some data as to how quickly it is in fact operating. So how often is there a quote unquote success? Well, if we look at, if we simply ask, did you survive from the filing of your petition until the end of our study? And we look at, and we're looking at the big, uh, the big data, right, where we, uh, for the, really, so it's the date that we downloaded from PACER, we get about a third of the 2,000 cases, uh, 2,010 cases succeeding. And a larger fraction of the 2013, that's not surprising, they didn't have as long to, to fail. Right, so it's not surprising that that's going to be higher. That one third is actually similar to the tip. You know, so studies that look at Chapter 13 typically find a one third success rate. But I don't want the, want you to come away thinking that we have similar success rates. Why? Because the one third that Chapter 13 looks at is discharge. That's a higher bar. If I apply my standard to the Chapter 13s, which I can because I have that data, it's about 46 percent. Okay, so it's a lower success rate than Chapter 13. You know, I, I noted that the chapter 13, the, sorry, the 2013s had less time to fail. One way to solve for that is to say, what was your status 545 days after filing? Why 545? Well, that's the amount of time between December 31st, uh, 2013, and the, the, the first date that we started pulling our data uh, from PACER, right? So that was the, the shortest window that we, we had. Uh, and the, the success rates for the two years are about identical. Um, for the small sample, uh, did you, did you uh, confirm a plan and then su survive 881 days, a longer period of time? Uh, because we were able to more easily go back and check those. We, the PACER waivers only lasted for a certain amount of time. I'm able to go on Bloomberg Law and recheck my cases uh, when I want to. Uh, we have about a 36% success rate, okay, so a little bit higher success rate. Uh, we then tried to ask uh, what the uh, what determines success, and this is way too small for you to read, so I'll just tell you uh, what 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 it is. Uh, I I did some just simple cross-sectional regressions, and then in the in the, the middle two columns, I added fixed district effects to try to see uh, to try to take out things that might be biasing the results, and then the last two columns here are really a placebo test because they're looking at chapter 13. The placebo test really focused on the difference in the absolute priority rule to try to see if legal differences are explaining things. So it turns out the legal dif differences aren't really explaining much, so I'm not going to, to focus on that. Uh, we found that jointly filed cases were much more likely to succeed. Cases filed pro se, I think you'll be shocked to find out they were less likely to succeed. Uh, I, we, we used the, uh, a, a scraping uh, code to look at how much experience the attorney had. In other words, how many other individual Chapter 11s the attorney had handled in our population. And we found that attorneys that did not handle a lot of cases, their cases were more likely to fail than those that handled more. Uh, and some other things that uh, 
Business cases were more likely to succeed. No asset cases, more likely to fail. Right? Um, I did forget when I started. How am I on time? 10 minutes? OK, good. Uh, this is even smaller. All right. Uh, so what, what is, so this, is, this is just trying to look at the individual, uh, the small sample coded cases. Uh, we didn't find anything that was super predictive, except again, if you're filing jointly with your spouse, your case is much more likely to survive. Uh, if you uh, were filing pro se, you were much less likely to survive. Uh, if your attorney had more experience, you were more likely to survive, your, your case was more likely to survive. That doesn't mean that, high, that highly experienced attorneys are better than, than low experienced attorneys. After all, the fact that our students do better than, than students at lower ranked law schools doesn't necessarily reflect that we're better professors. Some of it's a selection effect. It, it represents the fact that our admissions department is better than their admissions departments, maybe. I mean, that was not a popular statement, but uh, but so that's so there. So it, but similarly here, I can't. I'm not. I don't want to walk away claiming that the, the the more experienced attorneys are better. It may be that the more experienced attorneys are attracting debtors, higher asset debtors, who are more likely to succeed, and the attorneys that aren't doing as many are attracting debtors who have fewer assets or for some other reason are less likely to succeed. Uh, okay. Uh, I want to push forward and say a little bit more about timing. I mentioned a little bit of this before. So when you begin a bankruptcy case, you, you file schedules that, that disclose your assets, your income, all your, sort of the background facts so the case can proceed. Uh, and remember, in Chapter 13, you've got to, not, you, have got, you do this immediately, and they want you to file your plan within 14 days. The point of this slide is it ta it's taking our debtors in Chapter 11 a while to figure out their circumstances. The overwhelming majority do you know, would, uh, file their schedules either uh, at the, on their filing, so that's the zero, so about 35-ish percent of them file their schedules with their filing, and another 44% of them get their schedules filed within 30 days a month. Right? And so their initial filings are done generally pretty quickly. But one thing that made this study hard is that, they're that the debtors are almost always amending their schedules, filing new schedules as we go forward. In fact, there's a significant number of debtors who are filing their schedules uh, you know, six months or a year or sometimes up to two years after they file their petition. New facts are coming out. They're learning about who their, debt, what, who their creditors are, where their assets are. It's taking them a while to, to get their uh, financial house, just to picture their financial house, much less get it in order. How long does it take them to file their plan? Well, again, remember Chapter 13, you have to file your plan within 14 days. We got basically 1%. That's one debtor in each of 2010, 2013, who would have met that deadline. We don't see a significant number of initial plans getting filed until three months after the, 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 the bankruptcy petition. And the median time to, a, to the initial plan is about six months. Now that's just to file your plan. Now you've got to go through the process of actually trying to convince your creditors to vote for the plan. And your first plan almost never, never succeeds. You've got to do amendments. Uh, and so 
the how long till you actually approve a plan? Well, of those who actually get a plan approved, and there's only about 64, well, note here that 64% still haven't gotten their plan approved, right? So of the remainder, the 36% that do get a plan approved, the median time is about you know, 485 days in 2010, 440 in 2013. Substantially longer than a year to get your plan set in order instead of the 14 days or so in Chapter 13. How long does it take, uh, does it take the uh, bankruptcy to kick these cases, the failed cases out? That's too small, so let's look at, uh, let's look at the uh, at a, at a picture. It's a little bit easier to read. This is based on the, the large data, so I'm able to look at uh, how long does it take the, the, the courts to kick out the individual Chapter 11s, the corporate Chapter 11s, the small business Chapter 11s, and the Chapter 13s. Well, it depends on how many you're talking about. So to kick out the first 25% of cases that are going to fail, it takes about 140 days and for individual Chapter 11s, only 72 days for the Chapter 13s. That makes sense because there's strict deadlines. If you're not complying with the strict deadlines, they're going to boot you, and the trustees monitoring this are going to boot you out the door in Chapter 13, not so in Chapter 11. But it flips when we talk about kicking out the last, uh, the last chunk, the last 10% of failed cases. It's actually taking longer in Chapter 13 than Chapter 11. That's driven by the fact that these cases are not cases where you didn't get your plan in order, plan approved. These are cases where you have a plan but you weren't able to finish the payments. And so that varies. Okay, so what's, what's the conclusion? What I want you to walk away with? Well, first, individuals now account for somewhere between a quarter and a third of all Chapter 11 filings. So it's a significant number. Cases in which individuals are forced into Chapter 11 plans are rare or even non-existent. And then the question of, of do these debtors actually belong in Chapter 13? Well, the one answer is that, well, the debtors themselves don't think they do, because many of them were eligible to file under Chapter 13 but chose not to. And maybe they're right, because the individuals in Chapter 11 have very different characteristics than the individuals in Chapter 13. Higher assets, higher income, more likely to be operating to business uh, than Chapter 13 debtors. Um, as far as timing, about 36% in quote-unquote success, about 36% of the individuals in Chapter 11 avoid uh, dismissal for at least 881 days. The rate's going to be higher for joint filers, debtors with an experienced attorney, and debtors with significant real estate. And I'm done.